please join me in welcoming to the Distinctive Voices podium, Dr. Sada. Thank you very much, uh, Jennifer, and thank you everyone for being here uh, this evening. Uh, I know that we had a little bit of rain and inclement weather, and, and I'm glad everyone made it through uh, safely. Of course, we really need the rain, so we're not, none of us are really complaining, I don't think. Uh, but it's really a pleasure for me to, to be here to introduce uh, something I think very special, the Stephen J. Ryan uh, Memorial Lecture. Uh, as Jennifer was kind enough in her introduction, uh, I am uh, Vas Saad. I'm the President and Chief Scientific Officer of the Dehia Institute, and I've succeeded uh, Steve uh, Ryan in uh, this uh, lecture that's uh, part of this uh, Distinctive Voices series from the National Academies uh, is uh, being given in his honor. So uh, again, I want to extend uh, my welcome to you all, and I hope that you'll enjoy this evening. In fact, I'm sure you will, because we really have a fabulous uh, speaker. I want to make some acknowledgments in addition to Jennifer, but also Susan, uh, Marty, um, uh, and her team here at the NAS who do a marvelous job with these Distinctive Voices a series of programs. I want to acknowledge Christopher Conway, who's our Director of Development at Doheny Eye Institute. I think some of you uh, may have been in contact with uh, Christopher um, over the uh, years, and we very much are appreciative of your support. Of course, Janet DeMint, uh, um, who's the Program Director for this Ryan Initiative for Macular Research that I'll tell you a little bit about. So I also want to extend um, some other uh, special thanks to, to our many donors and supporters. Again, I know many of you are here in the audience who, but who've supported uh, this uh, very special Ryan Initiative uh, for Macular Research, I'm singling out a couple of, of, of folks who've really uh, been <clears throat> really instrumental, I think, in supporting the program, and Diane and Harry Rinker and the Rinker Foundation, uh, Gavin Herbert, and the Allergan Foundation, and of course, Mrs. Ann Ryan. Um, and, and um, Steve's wife, uh, and she really um, has um, been huge in, in terms of allowing us to continue with this really crucial uh, program. So I thought uh, in introducing uh, our lecturer, I want to say first a, a little bit about the person that we're honoring, uh, and he really is a giant, uh, was a giant in the field of ophthalmology, uh, a real visionary, and, uh, and he had an amazing vision uh, for what um, ophthalmology and ophthalmic research could really be. And that's, of course, Steve Ryan. And, and, and he's a giant in so many different ways. Uh, in, in terms of in our field, we measure people uh, in, uh, using a variety of different sticks. One of them, of course, is their, uh, is their publications and, and what, how they contribute to the scientific literature. Uh, and Dr. Ryan contributed in so many uh, different ways. Uh, and uh, in fact, uh, you know, the textbook in the field of retina, it's his textbook. Actually, Ryan's retina. He, you know, people talk about writing the book. He really did write the book on it, and, and he is really uh, someone who's really changed the field, whole different number of different research areas that he has uh, pursued that we obviously don't have time to talk about today. Uh, we have a number of different societies in our field of ophthalmology and retina uh, where, uh, where um, you know, real progress is made, and he's had leadership roles in all of these different organizations, and he's won so many awards. I mean, in our field, um, you know, his... His uh, recognition is almost unparalleled in terms of the different things that he's accomplished, and he's certainly been recognized um, for these great accomplishments. He's also provided great uh, leadership. This is obviously a distinctive voices with the, the NAS. Um, you know, uh, he's, uh, Steve's played a very important role, or played a very important role in the National Academy of, uh, of Medicine, uh, and, uh, and he's really been a great advocate uh, for ophthalmology through his uh, efforts and this is some, of the, some of his uh, interactions with some of our former presidents. And he's been really instrumental in, in making sure that we've had funding for 
vision research, uh, and, and ophthalmology. So for me personally, I mean, these are obviously enormous uh, shoes to, to fill. Can't possibly hope to, uh, hope to do that. But, uh, but he was an amazing uh, figure um, and somebody we really want to, to honor uh, this evening. And I just lastly, before I introduce our speaker, I just wanted to share some of the things I learned from, um, from uh, Dr. Ryan, who really was my mentor, my, my friend. Uh, and he taught us a lot. He taught not just me, but uh, as, as one, of, one of his many um, mentees, he taught all of us a great deal about, uh, about how to conduct ourselves. Um, and uh, one of the things that he taught us about was to achieve great rewards or success, you've got to take risks. Uh, and this is uh, an early picture of, of, of Dr. Um, Ryan actually uh, in, uh, in an office over in the old L.A. County um, Hospital, a sort of first office. That's where they did everything, saw patients and did, did everything in that, in that single room. And that was the amazing thing. When he was first recruited to, uh, to, um, to, to, to Los Angeles, uh, you know, there was only a single faculty member or full-time faculty member. So it was him. They didn't have any full-time faculty. It was just volunteers. Uh, and so he really grew that between 1974 and 2012. You can see the growth in terms of the faculty uh, and also the prestige of the institution and its contribution to vision research and the like. And so, you know, he at some point, uh, you know, even had to, uh, there, was a, there was a time when he actually had to put his own house up, um, um, uh, mortgages home, just to make sure there was funding to keep the institution going. So it just shows his commitment, and, and he believed. He believed in what the institution could be. He also was a big believer in, in uh, you know, you want to achieve great things, but you never compromise your ethics. Uh, and that was something that he's really taught to all of his, uh, his trainees um, over the years. Uh, and in fact, uh, you know, there's so many of us who uh, think upon him so um, fondly uh, because of the fact that he was an amazing mentor and teacher. Uh, and you can see he was incredibly productive. He trained hundreds of residents and fellows and people from around the world. Many of his trainees have gone on to be leaders in, in the field, chairs of various departments uh, around the world. So he's one of the most influential figures we've ever had uh, in, in ophthalmology. Uh, he also is a big believer um, in, in that you know, if you really want to accomplish big goals, like for example, an example of a big goal is curing macular degeneration. Okay, we'd like to stamp that out. Uh, and if you're going to solve huge problems like that, this you can't do with, with just a couple of people working in isolation. You need to develop big teams and big collaborations. And that's why he developed this initiative for macular research, worked with the Beckman Foundation initially to get this program uh, launched, and it's continued on. And it was really an ambitious goal. Um, and Dr. Ryan believed that if you bring together a critical mass of outstanding medical scientists uh, to study this problem uh, and you give them the right resources, they could actually really advance our understanding uh, of the disease and actually come up with real cures. And he thought that you need to have this, we call it interdisciplinary program. And I, I just want to tell you a little bit about it because it's very unique um, in, 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 uh, in medical um, um, endeavors uh, in that, uh, you know, an interdisciplinary program means that, well, you might have ophthalmologists, eye doctors working on the problem, but maybe you need to have a chemist, maybe you need to have engineers, maybe you need to have physicists, uh, maybe all of them can contribute in some way to solving a problem, and that's what Dr. Ryan uh, believed in. Uh, and he understood that it takes a long time to do basic research and get that to a treatment for patients. And he thought, if you want to accelerate this, you need to bring everyone together. You need to bring the industry folks who are going to actually take the treatment ideas and make them a reality, bring them together, and have them work with the doctors and the scientists in, in, in universities and academia 
to actually realize this goal. So, so, um, so we've been very fortunate through this program to have wonderfully talented people. These are all people who came because of uh, Dr. Ryan. And one of them happens to be Dr. Emily Chu, who is one of these phenomenal clinician scientists and a big part of this uh, initiative for immaculate research. And so uh, I'm, I'm so pleased and privileged to be able to introduce um, uh, Dr. Chu. Uh, Emily is a very dear friend uh, and uh, also, like Steve, one of the real giants and leaders um, in our field of ophthalmology. She's also a fantastic speaker. I know that you're going to love her talk. So I'm, I'm sure you're getting tired of me going on and on, so I promise I'm going to stop so you can hear what she has to say. But I did want to um, tell you a little bit about, um, about Emily's um, background. Uh, and uh, you know, she is the division director of, uh, for the Division of Epidemiology and Clinical Applications at the National Eye Institutes at NIH. Uh, in fact, and she's the chief of the clinical trials branch. So all these different studies uh, that we take on to learn more about disease, be able to test out new treatments, she's uh, played a really pivotal role. Uh, she, her background, or her early training background uh, was in Toronto where he, she completed her undergraduate and medical training and her ophthalmology residency. And we actually earlier heard some interesting stories about how Emily ultimately got to her next level of training in doing her um, retina fellowships um, at the Wilmer Institute, which incidentally is where um, I train and where Steve Ryan also did his uh, training. But she has an amazing uh, training background, uh, but, uh, but she's made amazing contributions to her fields. I mean, I started to enter into the slide her various awards and lectureships, and then it, the, the font got smaller and smaller and smaller, and you couldn't read it anymore, so I had to just you know, pick a few of them uh, to illustrate on this, uh, on this slide. Uh, but again, she, what's really been truly amazing is her leadership for all these clinical trials uh, in, 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 in diabetic retinopathy and this very interesting condition uh, called macular telangiectasis, but also an age-related macular generation, which is obviously a huge problem uh, for us in the United States and affects so many of us and, uh, and our loved ones. Uh, and Emily has led um, the critical studies that have told us, taught us so much about macular generation in the ARIDS and ARIDS-2 studies, and we've learned about the importance of nutrition and genetics, and she's going to be sharing those insights with us uh, this evening, and we're really uh, really privileged to be able to hear from her. So without further ado, again, I promise to stop talking. I am uh, very pleased to introduce our Stephen J. Ryan Memorial Lecture Lecturer as a part of this NAS Distinctive Voices series, um, Emily Chu. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And thank you, Voss, for that very generous introduction. Uh, I'm going to talk about macrogeneration, which was what Steve Ryan brought us to do together, uh, and I think we're still going to continue on, but I want to talk about the role of nutrition and genetics. I have no personal conflicts of interest, but our NIH, who I work for, uh, holds a, a, a royalty-bearing license that's issued to Bosch and Loam for some of the things I'm going to talk about. But just a word now about, about Steve. Um, Steve, this is one of my favorite pictures of Steve. He was a big proponent for China and did a lot of work in China before it was even popular. He realized he had a huge vision of where kids should go. Uh, and he's here pictured with one of our other colleagues, Dr. Alan Bird, who is also a giant in, in medical retina. He knows a lot about macular generation. The two of them were phenomenal people, phenomenal friends. And here we are at, in, in Beijing at one of our tours that we had together. Steve did a lot of teaching outside of the US and, um, and taught many of us. So he's a mentor, and we sorely miss him. And certainly his vision continues on. We're very grateful that he started all this with us. And we're, we're very, very fortunate that we're able to do this. 
So I'm going to talk about macrogeneration, which is ranked third in the World Health Organization's review of the leading causes of blindness worldwide. Uh, in developed country, AMD is actually the leading cause of blindness, and there's a lot of people, as you can see, we know our numbers of people over 70 years of age is really growing, so this disease is really increasing in number. Uh, the shift is certainly happening for lots of chronic diseases, and macrogeneration is certainly one of them. And this is definitely increasing uh, with great, great numbers, and I'll tell you more about this in a minute. So in the United States alone, we have about 2 million people who already have vision-threatening disease. In other words, this is a late disease. People already have vision affected. Another 8 million are at high risk for developing late AMD. These are figures from 2004. Uh, and these treatments are quite onerous, uh, both in resources and in time. They affect the family members as well as those individuals who are affected. The monetary and emotional burden on a family and the society is really enormous. Um, so again, we're looking at this marked increase. This is going to double in 2020. So the numbers are, are just growing and growing. And so we have to do something really to help cure this disease. Here's a pie chart showing that macrogeneration accounts for more than half of all blindness in the United States. Uh, and this is for the white Americans. So there's a racial difference in, in this disease. Uh, you can see glaucoma and cataract. Cataract, of course, is eminently fixable. Glaucoma, not so much, but also a very important disease, as well as diabetic retinopathy. And people with diabetes should definitely have eye exam frequently to make sure they don't have diabetic eye disease. But if you look at African Americans, uh, macrogeneration is not as common. It's only about 4%, uh, whereas other diseases like cataract and glaucoma are much more common than that. So, so there are some racial differences. What are some of the other risk factors that promote the disease and have disease progression? Aging, that's, that's the number one risk factor, as, and that's something that we cannot prevent, but other than age you know, gracefully. Um, and of course, genetics plays a very important part. And smoking, some of the environmental factors, smoking is a constant risk factor we see in all our studies. Smoking is never good for you, and it's not good for your eyes either. And even for, even for mothers who smoke, their children may have eye problems. So smoking goes from baby disease all to, to, to old age. I will talk about nutritional risk factors in a, while, in a little while. And then, of course, the other risk factors are what we call fundus features, or these are findings in the eye itself that make you increase risk for macrogeneration. So here are a number of studies that are done. The first two, Framingham, you probably know well from the US. The Beaver Dam is somewhere in Wisconsin. Uh, the other studies are in Europe. Uh, Rotterdam is, uh, is in the Netherlands. Blue Mountains in Australia. Euroretina, as, as we say, in, in, in um, Europe. And in China, Barbados. And then the last two are in Japan and in India. So you can see that the, the incidence or the the rate of having macrogeneration increases markedly over age of 65 and 70. And it's been estimated that in the US, uh, if you're a, a white female, there's like almost a 30% chance you may have some mild changes of macrogeneration. So it's that common in this, in this country. Genetics may account for about 60% of the diseases. This is a, just a pretty plot, what we call a Manhattan plot. And it's called Manhattan because it looks like, you know, little, uh, like Manhattan itself, right? <laughs> and so that it just points to all the different genes that we've, we've looked at. Uh, I will speak more about genetics in a minute, but genetics is very important in the macrogeneration. 
But one thing we can do a lot about is actually stop people from smoking. Smoking, as I said, is never good for you. Uh, and here you have a study from France showing that the more you smoke, the higher chance you are of, of getting MAC degeneration. So going from 1 to 19 pack year to more than 40 years, there's a five-fold increased risk of having MAC degeneration. And that's one very consistent risk factor that we have. So just before we start, I'm going to give you an anatomy 101 on the normal eye and what that looks like. Uh, the front is the cornea, which is like the, you know, the, the watch glass over your, your, your watch. It, it has to be clear, and it allows the light to come in. The iris what gives you your blue or brown beautiful color eyes. And the lens is what becomes the cataract. It's usually very clear. It's like a little glass piece, a little lentil that uh, with age becomes more opaque. It becomes a cataract. What we're really interested in is the retina, which is this very thin structure that lines the eyeball, and it co collects together in a bunch of cables and go to the brain, to the optic nerve, through that part. And we actually see with our brain. So when, the, when things affect the brain, your vision is affected. So really, the retina is the extension of the brain. It's the brain tissue that we're dealing with. And if we then to look at this as, as, a, um, uh, as a clinician, this is what we see. If we dilate your pupil, we look in, and this is what we look at. Uh, this is the optic nerve that gathers all the fibers into the brain. The macula is the center part of the eye where you see best. That's your 20-20 vision comes from that area, hence the macular generation. And for patients with macular generation, this is what you see. Instead of that clear color, you actually see these yellow spots. These are called drusen, and these are large. We call them large drusen. At this stage, we would classify this person as having macular degeneration. But the vision is still very good. They can have 20-20 vision, but they may have some symptoms. They can't see quite as well in the dark. Uh, they have problems getting from a very bright room to a dark room. Adaptation to the dark might be more difficult. So those are the early signs. But this patient may be totally escaped and still have 20-20 vision and not realize that they have this disease. And what happens then with time, the, the yellow spots of drusen is like things under the carpet that just never gets cleaned up. Uh, it causes change in the eye in what we call two forms of late forms of vision-threatening macular degeneration. One is called a wet or knee vascular in which blood vessels grow, and you see this uh, hemorrhaging here. Uh, and this patient has a very acute, very sudden loss of vision because of the the, the hemorrhage-causing vision loss. The next one is called dry AMD, in which there's just a, a very slow withering away of the tissues, and the center part of the macula, where fine vision comes from, may eventually get snuffed out. You may have good vision for some time, but patients are, are, are affected by this. So this is what we see as the ophthalmologist when we look in, and this is what the patient sees. It causes, in the very late stages, a central scotoma, uh, or what we call blind spot. And one of the things patients often complain about is they can't see the faces very well. Even if they're loved ones, they can't see the features well. They can't read or write and obviously cannot drive. So we're waiting for those driverless cars to come soon. Uh, if you can click on, the, on this, that'd be great. Thank you. And this is just a, a video showing, here we are looking at the, some young children. But with macular degeneration, this is what happens. The central, we can't simulate it quite as well as we'd like. We want to show what they may actually experience. Uh, you're often scanning around, so you actually see this blank spot, and, and the things become very blur. But it's not quite the same, because you're going to always be scanning around. You don't really see that big black spot, but you just see things blur. 
So this is one of the things that patients really complain about. So let's get to the nutritional risk factors now. We are what we eat. We're totally what we are what we eat. Uh, this comes from a 1591, a Renaissance artist who has made the fact that we are what we eat. Uh, so this pretty came on in 1988 when there were studies looking at what we call the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, the NHANES study, which occurs about every three or four years. Actually, it's about every three years. The nation's uh, health in terms of diet is evaluated. We take blood samples and see what you're eating, taking dietary information to see how uh, people are eating, what they're eating, and what their blood levels are. And for the first time in 1988, they suggested that a diet rich in fruits and vegetables with vitamins A and C were inversely associated. In other words, if you eat more, you have less likely chance of macular degeneration. So diet may be very important. That's the first clue that we've had. And, and then at the NIH, where I work, uh, we started a new trial called the Age-Related Eye Disease Study, or the ARIDS. And this was a clinical trial started in 1992 and ended in 2001. And we followed the patients further for another five years. These are very slow-growing conditions, so it takes a while for things to happen. Uh, so 10 years is really a, a nice snapshot of what happens over the course of the, uh, the, this condition. What we did was look at a clinical trial. And this clinical trial was looking at very different areas of, or different severities of macular degeneration, uh, what we call early. Those little spots I told you about the Drusen are very small here. When they're large, we call them intermediate AMD. Or when they're more advanced, like what I just showed you, the wet form and the dry form. So we had patients with varying severity of macular degeneration. But one eye was always not advanced. So we were able to test that eye to see whether we could treat with supplements to make it uh, prevent it from getting worse. And we looked at vitamin C, that's half a gram, vitamin E, 100 international units, and beta carotene, 50 milligrams. Uh, these are very large doses. You cannot eat that in one day. I mean, the vitamin C take like a dozen oranges. Vitamin E would take about a, a room full of wheat germ to get that amount. Uh, and so beta carotene would be a huge amount of, of carrots to get to that. And there was interest in zinc. Zinc was thought to be very important, and this was tested as well. At the end of the day, after five years, we found that this vitamin combination was actually successful in reducing the risk of macular degeneration by 25% at five years. So it's quite astounding because most other studies at the time were looking at cardiovascular disease and cancer. They did not have such success. So there was something unique about the eyes that we were able to affect the eyes with vitamins such as this. So who should take these vitamins? Well, patients with evidence of macular degeneration, they have either large drusen, as I showed you, or advanced disease in one eye. Not for current smokers. We found that beta carotene increases the risk of lung cancer by as much as 28% and increases, actually, uh, uh, mortality. And these for people who are smokers. So not for offsprings with, with, without large drusen. In other words, we have patients who come in, they bring their children in, they're in the 50s and 40s and 50s, and they say, well, my parents have such a terrible disease, I should perhaps be on this as well. Our answer usually is no, because unless you have the disease, it doesn't make any difference. It will not prevent the small drusen into large drusen. So in other words, it doesn't really do anything until you actually have the condition. It's more like a secondary prevention. And if, if you have it, you know, some of these uh, advertisements for these drug companies like to think that everybody should use it. It's for your general eye health. But that's not true. It's really meant for people with macular degeneration. 
And in the study, um, you know, we tested the, the actual drug, but we also asked a number of other questions. We asked them their dietary data. What did you eat in the last year? Now, that's a pretty tough question. I can't remember what I ate yesterday. So um, what we do is we take the sort of two ends, people who don't eat it, you know, who never eat spinach or never eat fish will tell you I never eat that. There are people who eat it five times a week or more. So that's what we mean by a lot and, by, and, and, and not at all. It turns out it's not the carrots your mother told you about that's good for your eyes. It's actually green leafy vegetables. So it's the lutein zeaxanthine, which is uh, it's like a vitamin that's found in spinach particularly, and now the superfood kale uh, and the collards are, are really important for that source. We found a second factor that was very important in the diets, and that's fish. People who eat fish had much less macrogeneration. I'll show you some statistics from this. This is comparing people who have macrogeneration uh, and taking the highest intake, the top 20 percentile, versus the lowest, people who never eat fish. To get the, and this is at baseline when we're looking at people with disease and without disease. 35% less having wet macrogeneration, about 65% less having dry AMD, and 20% percent less for large drusen, and these are people taking higher doses or higher servings of green leafy vegetables versus those who never. If you look at uh, intake of fish, which is a measure of the what we call DHA, docosahexaenoic acid, or uh, EPA, those are the two main things that you see in, in omega-3 uh, fatty acids. And we look again at the diet and see that people who took a lot of this had a 40-50% less chance of having macrogeneration. So this seems very impressive that this is very important. And looking forward, if you had high intake of fish, you're less likely to develop this dry type of macrogeneration. So it looked very interesting uh, that we should uh, consider this. And because these are what we call observational data, it's not a randomized trial, it's not a clinical trial, it's possible people who eat fish may do other things that are different. They may take their blood pressure drugs much differently, much more, much more vigilantly. Uh, they may take better care of themselves. So in order to really test whether this is important, we have to do a randomized trial. And we thought about that. Why would we do a trial? Is, is there a good reason for doing it? Well, it turns out that lutein and zeaxanthine are the two main components of what we call the macro pigment. This is a this is a retina from a, from a monkey, a primate, one of our close cousins here. You can see that this macular luteate, which we have, it's a macular pigment, a yellow pigment inside our macula. It's made up of lutein and zeaxanthine. And if you look at animal models, people uh, have studied this, where animals are raised without the diet, they don't have this macular pigment. So we don't make it. We have to actually consume the plants to actually have this macular pigment. So it makes sense to consider adding the lutein zeaxanthine as a supplement. We actually want to do that in our first study, but it was not available commercially. So we went with beta-carotene, and you heard the story about beta-carotene causing lung cancer. So we're interested in seeing whether we can eliminate beta-carotene. The omega-3s are important because it's part of the makeup of these tissues in the retina, in the brain. They're very important. So we thought there are really good reasons, given these data from observational data, we should test this. So we did. Uh, we tested this in the ARIDS-2 study, which had about 4,000 patients. ARIDS-1 had close to 5,000 patients. We followed these patients in ARIDS-2 for five years, and we put them onto either lutein cysanthine or a sugar pill or a placebo or omega-3 or a placebo or the combination. 
But this case was a little different. We're adding to the omega three. We're adding omega three and lutein to the original air supplement to see whether we would have any more better effect. We also took this opportunity to see whether we could eliminate beta carotene because it causes lung cancer, and zinc was thought to be a very high dose, and perhaps that wasn't going to be uh, really important. We should make it. Uh, much more physiological at 25 milligrams, which is what we think uh, is what you can absorb. So we actually tinker with the dose again and see what would happen. So the results of the study show that, surprisingly, the omega-3 DHA EPA had no effect. It was not beneficial nor harmful. But lutein cisanthin did add some, some protection, especially in those people who did not eat leafy green vegetables. That it was actually 25% reduction on top of that. If you directly pitch lutein versus beta-carotene, which we could actually assess in our study, lutein always went out, was better than beta-carotene. But more importantly, we found that beta-carotene increased the risk of lung cancer twofold. So it's, it's, you know, clearly these were people who were not smokers anymore. They could be either former smokers or, or non-smokers. It turns out 90% of these people were actually former smokers who had developed lung cancer. So once you're a smoker, you're never actually at a, a zero risk. But beta-carotene seems to increase that risk still. So for safety reasons, we have replaced the beta-carotene with lutein zeaxanthine. We found in the zinc there was no difference between the two doses. So the new ARIS-2 supplement, we took away the beta-carotene, replaced it with lutein zeaxanthine, and we did not add omega-3 because it had made no difference. So despite that, we know that fish is important because many studies, not just our study, but tons of studies showing that eating fish is important, both for your macrogeneration, probably for cardi cardiac health as well. And your cardiologist talks about having twice a week fish, and I think that's a very appropriate. I uh, have a lot of green leafy vegetables. Stop smoking. Uh, I think you should stop smoking no matter when you start it, and, and if, even now it's really important. And then consider the air supplement with the lutein, cyaxanthine, especially for those who already have what we call intermediate macrogeneration and those with late AMD. I'm going to switch gears now, talk about genetic testing, because that's kind of interesting. People are very interested in that. It's sort of the new wave of the genes is becoming very important. Genetic testing is, is very important because it may help us identify the disease mechanisms. How does it work? The genes may give us some insight into how does the disease actually uh, pan out, what can we do to prevent it, and maybe early disease detection and prevention might also be prevented with genetic testing. And it gives research, uh, researchers targeted areas to look at therapies, which is very important. And more recently, it's been thought it's important to predict individuals' responses to therapy, and you could then customize these treatments like personalized medicine, uh, such as in oncology. I'll give you an example of this. In oncology, this personalized medicine does work. If you have breast cancer and you have your are positive for Herceptin, uh, uh, HER2, you know, Herceptin actually may be very beneficial. If not, you may want some other treatments. The same with leukemia, with Gleevec. So that genetic testing is very important to see whether there's good response to therapy that may be actually life-saving. So genetics in macrogeneration has been tremendous. There's been an explosion of information. 2005, we were very fortunate. There was four groups that came up with a very important finding, uh, so-called conflict factor H, which is important in our, our, our immune system to help us fight infections and other things. That became a very important finding. Uh, and we know that, in fact, complex factor H is in the eye. This is a picture of the, the, some layers of the eye, and we actually can find in the eye 
and it may be very important in the disease. But even though we know about this from 12 years, we don't know how it actually works. So it still eludes us as to how that works. Again, I show you the Manhattan plot. This is showing the different types of genes that are, that are available that we know about. Uh, chromosome 1, which is the complement factor H, and the chromosome 10 are the two most common genes that you, you'll hear about. ARMS2, it's called, and it accounts for probably about 60% of all our genetic materials that, that is associated with macular generation. And it gets bigger and bigger. Um, so this is now 2016. When we, when we showed you that was in 2013, we analyzed more patients and found more genes. And in fact, we found now 52 genes instead of the 19. So now we have a lot of information about the genetics uh, that are very, very important. This was just published in last year, February last year. But what does this all mean? Well, we actually don't really have all the all the answer. We don't know what these genes actually do, what the function of them may be, but if we do, they would help us a lot in understanding the actual underlying disease itself. So we've tried to look at this in some way we call pathways. So complement is for immune systems, the collagen pathway is for like scar formation, and lipid pathways is looking at how the lipid uh, actually lays down. So it's thinking of, the, you know, we think of it as like having an oil spill in the, in the eye that may be causing some of the macular generation. And maybe some of the lipid drugs may be very important. And people have tested that hypothesis. So these are just ideas to help us understand the disease, underlying disease, and how we can go about studying it and hopefully, hopefully help patients by bringing in new drugs. Now, should, should we use genetic testing in macular generation? Some of you might have actually had some, uh, some information on this. Uh, should this be done to predict who will progress to macular generation? And should it be done to predict how people will respond to therapies? You know, uh, many of you may know that one of the main therapies is injection into the eye. Uh, you've heard of Avastin, which is giving for cancer. Uh, Lucentis and Ilea, those are the highly successful treatments for macular generation. And there are thoughts maybe some genetic differences might occur. Uh, and also, people have thought ERITS2 might be, supplements might also need uh, to be evaluated for genetics to see whether they respond a certain way. With, without a doubt, there is no evidence-based data to support testing at all at this case uh, for progression and response to MAC generation. I'll tell you why. So, MAC generation is what we call a complex genetic disease. It's associated with multiple, multiple genes. So, it's not just one or two genes. It has, a, as you saw, 52 genes, so it's not something you can simply say, do you have this? Are you going to progress? Uh, there are other factors. We talked about smoking and diet. So those will modulate how your genes will work. And certain variants are associated with either a risk, what we call it, is harmful, and certain, certain variants are actually protective. So again, it's a sort of mixed bag of some being protective and some being harmful. How does that play? Uh, and so we don't understand that yet. And these are not what we call abnormal genes, like you would see for someone with Down syndrome or cystic fibrosis. It's just that this variant isn't very common, but it does cause disease. So it's not like a, a, like an, a bad gene in a sense. It's just different. So these are very different from what we know about other genetic testing. And people with these particular, what we call risk alleles, may be perfectly fine and have actually no disease. And people would have macular generation have no genetic uh, uh, mutations at all. So, so it's, it's much less 
valuable in this case for macrogenic patients to actually have genetic testing compared to other diseases, which we know the gene is very important. And, and finding a gene in one study is not sufficient. You have to look at it in multiple studies to replicate. Like all good experiments in science, you have to be able to replicate it and find the same findings again. So we do these what we call risk models. And risk models are using logistic regressions, a lot of statistics. I'm not going to go into great details about them. And this is what we call a receiver uh, operating curve. Anything that's one would be a perfect fit. It predicts it really well. Anything that's 0.5 is pretty random. So 0.75 is fairly good. So that's sort of numbers we're talking about. I just want to show you this. Uh, we looked at Mac generation and how you predict it in ARIDS-2 and the Blue Mountain Eye study. We found that no genetic risk factor was even put into there. And we found that there was good correlation. 0.88 predicts it quite well. And the, and the validation sample, the second study, was 0.91. So it showed that the risk model was very good without the genetic risk factors. So in other words, genetic markers add very little to prediction of who gets macrogeneration. So that makes it a really not a great, great test to use. And in fact, the overwhelming factor that's important in predicting your eye findings are really the eyes itself. If you look in, you see the presence of these large drusen, which you see here, and pigmentary change you see right in there. That predicts it better than anything else. So in fact, you're better off to have an eye exam than to have genetic testing at this stage. Uh, so there are people who thought that you might be harmed by specific genetic types, and you should do t testing before you'd have treatment, either with the air supplement. We actually tested that and found that there was no such thing. In fact, all genetic types responded very well. It made no difference what your genetic makeup was. So we, we do not advocate genetic testing for this. Or for people who are getting injections for macrogeneration. Again, there was no good data suggesting that there was any difference in responses. And we feel that there's, this doesn't warrant any, any forms of AMD testing prior to the injection. So genetic testing remains really important in research. And hopefully, genetic testing in the near future will help us uh, predict progression disease and help us guide future treatments. So we're not ready to change any of the recommendations that are given by the American Academy of Ophthalmology, which is our professional organization that lets out a lot of the, lot of the practice patterns and recommendations for what should be done. And they say, avoid genetic testing for AMD, at least for now. So this is something we don't need to do. But I want to bring all this back together now. Um, this is the Rotterdam Eye Study, in which they looked at the dietary intakes of nutrients and looking at different genetic makeups. And if you're at high risk, you can actually reduce your risk by having a good diet. I'll show you this, this data here. So here you see there's three bars. The lowest bar, the dark bar, are those people without any risk of the genetics. The white bar are those with the highest risk of genetics. So they have what we call the Two, the two risk alleles, and this one only has one. So you can see if you have a higher genetic risk, you actually have a higher risk of having macrogeneration. On the x-axis, you see one, two, and three. So these are tertiles, and this is what they're taking. One is the lowest intake, dietary intake. And the third tertile are people taking the highest intake. So the more you actually eat a zinc or beta-carotene or omega-3s or lutein zeaxanthine, you see this big rise actually gets flattened out. So in other words, you can actually eat away your genetic risk. So even if you're high risk, you have a good diet, 
you're actually your risk of early macular degeneration actually gets equalized to what it would be if you didn't have that risk. Well, that's pretty powerful. So you are what you eat. Uh, and this was also looked at uh, at later stages of macular degeneration. That was the early macular degeneration. And, and again, lutein cysteine came up as very important. 20% reduction in early AMD. And again, fish is very important. I'm sorry for the vegans out there that you can't eat fish, but, but fish is, is thought to be a very important aspect of this. So bringing together, you see that nutrition and the genetics are important. Uh, but right now, it's important for us to actually have the eye exam. If you're at risk, you should have eye exam. We recommend patients 65 and older at least have once a year. And in fact, it probably should be <clears throat> earlier than that for patients to check out uh, if they have macular so if you have a family history of it, uh, and, and the diet, again, is very important. So in conclusion, the results of the clinical trials of ARIS-2 shows that we should substitute the lutein cysanthine for beta-carotene for safety and efficacy, safety especially with the lung cancer issues, so anyone can actually take lutein cysanthine. We had negative results for omega-3 uh, for macular progression, uh, even though we don't have a clinical trial, but we think eating fish is very important. And persons with, with evidence of large Drusen, like evidence of AMD at all, should consider taking the ARIDS-2 supplements uh, for sure. Genetic testing is really important for research. This AMD gene consortium that put all this together has made great advances over the last decade. We need to move forward. This is where the research is really important, learning about the functional aspects of this genetic pathways that we're looking at and to see whether we can analyze and find newer ways of treating macrogeneration. And certainly, we, don't, we would not suggest having your AMD tested for genetic testing at this point prior to any treatment because it's not been proven. I'd like to thank the ARIS-1 and ARIS-2 uh, participants who really have been phenomenal. Some of them we follow for over 10 years. I'm still following some of my patients who are now 20-some years down the road. Uh, and they've been incredibly uh, altruistic in giving us lots of their time and allowing us to explore them for so long. The investigators really are in hundreds and hundreds of people uh, we were very fortunate. We, we, we partnered with Dr. Sada uh, at, uh, at Doheny, and there's one of 82 clinics that actually worked very hard in putting this together. The National Eye Institute supported this, and the, some of the pharmaceutical companies actually gave us the drugs to test uh, from Alcon, DSM, Bachelom, and Pfizer. So we're very grateful for them for giving us millions and millions of tablets to help us look at this. And I thank you for your attention. <laughs>